Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hi, I'm Stephen. And I'm Anoush. This week, we look back at Labour Conference. We discuss the Supreme Court verdict. And you ask us... Why did the ERG not vote for Theresa May's deal? So, the big political story of the week is that Parliament is back after the Supreme Court ruled that... It never went away. It never went away, yeah. So, we were both at Labour Party Conference, which we'll talk about later uh, later on in the episode... I think in an odd way it felt like a microcosm of politics at the moment, which is that there are loads of things which we'll talk about later on, which we could kind of feel like doesn't feel like this party is in the best position to to fight and win an election. Mm. And then the second your focus turns back to the government, you suddenly go, oh, right, yeah, actually, there are loads and loads of ways in which this is still a very vulnerable deeply unpopular administration that has lost its uh yeah kind of any i was about to say lost and that would imply and i thought there was a point where the boris johnson government had a particularly clear sort of tactical approach now it may be by the time that we have then yeah then this comes out for people who are not subscribers and therefore get this ad free maybe by the time it comes out then the government has successfully negotiated the passage of a one-line bill to secure an election on a specific day with appropriate safeguards to guarantee an extension to prevent no deal. I kind of think that doesn't really matter because, well, it doesn't really matter in terms of the discussion we're going to have because we know we're going to have an election anyway. What to you do you feel the kind of important element of the Supreme Court just judgment is? Like you say, it, it's important to look at it in terms of the bigger picture of politics. So it could go two ways. At the moment, it's making the government look chaotic, mendacious, making Boris Johnson look like he's um, lost control of the administration. He's make, It's making the opposition look like they're, they're winning, which can be very bad for, for the reputation of a prime minister. And, you know, when you ask people who are slightly detached from politics, they're not going to tell you, oh, you know, I was focusing on Labour's composite motion on their strategy ahead of a general election in terms of Brexit. They're going to tell you Boris Johnson lied to the Queen, you know. So in terms of the bigger picture, the broad brushstroke, that's bad news for Boris Johnson. But then again, there's this other argument, which you can already see on the front pages of some of the right wing tabloids, which is this can feed into the view of an establishment versus prime minister or versus the people or the people who are in favour of Brexit, at least, scenario, which sort of reportedly is the way that Downing Street would like any future election before we leave the European Union to be framed. 
certain MPs are concerned about that, not necessarily because of the electoral impact, but perhaps because of the personal impact. They've already been called saboteurs and mutineers and traitors, and some of them have to have security now, and, and some of them receive death threats, etc. So, it, you know, it can be exploited by Downing Street, this outcome, as well as being something that makes Boris Johnson look terrible in the short term. Yeah, I kind of think a sort of people versus parliament election, I can see how it can broadly be carried off. Mm. I sort of think one of the problems with this verdict, right, is essentially MPs as a class are sort of surpassed in unpopularity and levels of distrust only by journalists and estate agents, basically. So, you know, in the same way that, you know, there was a lot of in Labour conference journalists complaining about speeches slagging off the press and going, oh, it's a bad look. It's just like it, it objectively isn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't like it. I'm not saying that, that I, I'm glad that we exist. But like, it's just like, has anyone watched like the portrayal of a journalist in a rom-com lately? <laughs> yeah. Or had a conversation with someone who doesn't know what you do, in which inevitably phone hacking does come up? Like, uh, of course it isn't. It isn't it, actually, depressingly, I think it is probably a net positive when people see people at Boris Johnson's events booing journalists or when they see Jeremy Corbyn slagging off the press. People don't like us. Mm. And... I mean, I also think we should probably think a bit about why that is. But people do trust judges. They trust doctors. They trust a lot of the other people who we kind of keep reading. Sort of some commentators go, ah, actually, it's a widening of the people versus parliament thing. I kind of think that I think MPs are right to worry that it will lead to more death threats, you know, a a worse sort of political environment. But I don't know what's a worse political... Yeah, just a few death threats, you know, like having slightly more rubbish on the street corner. I I think... um, it's actually significantly less effective to widen the scope of it away from Parliament to everyone else. I just think that they just really thought they'd be able to have an election by now and they don't really have a viable plan B. You could see that in their response, actually, to the to the ruling because it was clear that they had no, no line prepared on what they were going to say. I did think that was really remarkable, right? Yeah. Because ultimately there were only three things that the court could plausibly decide. They could either have said... It's non-judiciable, it's not within our wheelhouse, but you, you know, you clearly did do this to frustrate Parliament, who do you think you're kidding, and thrown the court out and kind of like wrapped everyone's hands. Mm. They could have gone, it's not our wheelhouse, and that would have been it. And they could have gone, it is our wheelhouse, you shouldn't have done it, and we we do think, you know... We're going to find it, some other way to... Find to some, yeah. And those, those were the only plausible routes that the court was going to take, because... Essentially, everyone who's not overly invested yeah, on the government side, including actually some people who are overly invested in the government side, will probably... Of course it was about blocking Parliament. <laughs> I think... The person I do think has a lot of nerve is John Major, who was the first person to do this, sponsoring the court case, being like, <laughs> you know, it's, it's really bad to do this. It's just like, I mean, I agree, John, but I haven't done it. So maybe you should just pipe down. But... Well, that's the ironic thing about everyone, tr- not everyone, people on certain side of this debate treating the judges as, you know, these sort of hero figures. Because if they make a ruling like this and you get into government or your side gets into government, they can make another ruling that's just as inconvenient for you. So it's very strange to look at look at these people as heroes or villains. It's just to, it's just worth celebrating the fact that the law seems to be working correctly. Yeah, I, what I find slightly bizarre about the present moment is you talk to any big-name centre-right commentator, almost any conservative politician, and they are deeply and correctly worried about the fact that they might lose office. Hmm. And yet, at the same time, these same people are just like, but executive power, <laughs> what, 
Why is it being taken away from me? It's like, guys, you know, then it's plausible, plausible that these, this fear you have about this thing and this anger you have about this court case, maybe there's a, a yeah. link. Yeah. Um, but I do think it's, I think it is kind of the hangover of Theresa May's approach after 2017, where the way she quelled an attempt to get rid of her was essentially to pretend that nothing that bad had happened and that she could carry on as normal. Mm. Because, I mean, so many of the government's complaints in private and public do basically consist of it's not fair that the 2017 election has consequences. And it's just like, well, you, you don't have a majority, therefore you, you don't get to act like... Thatcher or Blair, and I think it's also another example of people who are just far too obsessed with US politics going, oh, this is going to make us like have an American-style Supreme Court. It's just like, the American Supreme Court can say, we don't care if every senator has voted for it, it's unconstitutional. If they had a majority, they could pass a Johnson prorogues when he likes bill, yeah. and he could prorogue when he liked, but they don't, so they can't. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it is really strange the way that some politicians think that they are in power when they're in a minority government. Yeah. <laughs> it's just bizarre. Like, yeah, it's just like, guys, you know that, that one billion you have to hand over every... every and also, year. they all seem unable to make their leaders resign as well if they want to get rid of... Well, I suppose they did manage in the end with Theresa May, but not when they should have been able to. I think Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn has re- have really set this new norm where no one ever resigns. <laughs> I think because in both cases, right, because... Essentially, right, because Labour MPs kind of essentially broke their own internal systems yeah. by taking a perfectly adequate safeguard of, you know, the, I think, I mean, there are uh, there are many, many things that I think speak to the bankruptcy of a lot of tendencies within the Labour Party. And I spoke to a big name person, you know, on the right of the Labour Party or the Corbyn sceptic wing, and um, they were talking about, you know, you know, what might happen afterwards. And they said, the problem is, is, at the end of this, if there is an end of this, we're still confronted with the essential problem, which isn't we're lost because we're all mediocre. Um, <laughs> yeah, and and we're still all mediocre. And I just thought, you know, it's so refreshing to hear someone actually acknowledge the, that, the depth <laughs> yeah. of that problem. But there was kind of this sort of weird moment where people were again go, oh, it's Ed Miliband's fault. And it's just like, Ed Miliband created a situation where you could not get on the ballot unless you had enough people to support you Right. Mm. You could essentially have a cabinet full of your own backers. And I think actually that is the really important thing about that threshold. It's not the only reason why Labour is so underpowered in terms of people who can go on television, etc, etc. But fundamentally, if you create a situation where someone can become your leader without without being able to populate the upper tier of their front bench with loyalists and to have enough loyalists around. Yeah, they don't have to make a choice between loyalists and competence because they don't yeah. have enough loyalists around to, to not have to, to just choose all of them. Then, of course, you end up with chaos, civil war and gridlock. But that was the fault of Labour MPs who chose to game that system for their own advantage. And it does sum up their structural problem that grown adults are still going, oh, it's not my fault for nominating Jeremy Corbyn to stop Andy Burnham becoming leader. Uh, I mean, which, to be fair, did work. Um, it, it's, um, it's, it's actually Ed's fault for creating a system with a safeguard I deliberately chose to override for my perceived advantage. It's just like, no, it's your fault. Hmm. Take responsibility. You are the authors of this mess. Yeah, yeah. And um, also look beyond the next year. Yeah. You know, that's another thing that politicians don't 
tend to do. You know, those praising the judges, those those decrying the judges. It's like, look beyond this this week. You know, what, yeah. what do you think is the long term of these precedents being set? You know. Yeah, it's just like one of those things where I yeah, I just find it wild the number of supporters of a small state who when I'm just like, look, I'm so relaxed about the executive not being able to do what it wants yeah, when yeah, it doesn't exactly, have a majority yeah. and just like isn't that also meant to be your thing as well? Yeah. <laughs> um Yeah, it is wild. So I think yeah, the I guess so the other well, I actually think in another way, right, from a Brexit perspective, I think that the the worst has happened from the government's perspective, right? Mm. They've been forced to seek an extension. Parliament may now find ways to legislate to to get rid of any possible trapdoors out of seeking that extension. Yeah. Also, it's much harder to find those trapdoors now you've been ruled as doing something illegal once. Yeah. Yeah. Like, but the worst has happened from a Brexit perspective. I think the thing which would really worry me if I were in Downing Street is this story about this uh, entrepreneur and mm. it's one of those nightmare stories because it in- involves so many words that I'm not a hundred percent comfortable pronouncing quickly. Like entrepreneur is one of those words where I really <laughs> have to like slow down to just be like, I'm going to say it. Um, <laughs> this, this woman who set up businesses called Jennifer Arcuri, she used to be a model and she received her companies received large sums of money. Well, you know, grants from city hall and, Boris Johnson is accused of not adequately disclosing his, his his friendship with this woman. He's refused to comment on it. She's denied that she was ever romantically engaged with him. But, you know, it's a dream story for almost every part of the press, right? It's a dream story if you're, like, a tabloid and wants to, like, put a picture of a woman not wearing very much near a, a nominally serious story. It's a dream story if you don't like Boris Johnson. It's a dream story if you want to talk about Whitehall accountability. And now, yeah, there, there is something for almost every flavour of political journalist in this story. Yes, yeah. No one's going to be avoiding it. Yeah. yeah. And, and now uh, then Parliament is back. Leila Moran, who I think actually did, you know, kind of was a really sort of good bit of just opposition politics. Urgent question down about one of the organisations. Yeah, Matt Warman, the the sort of the culture lead on that particular portfolio, I think, you know, didn't have the world's most fun matchbox <laughs> debut. And I think it's that where Parliament coming back matters. The damage has been done over Brexit. But yeah. I think if the opposition parties or indeed just individual opposition MPs can find smart ways of getting that in the news, continuing to uh, exploit the government's evident discomfort over it, then that I think may be more significant than, than anything to do with Brexit. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. So nominally the big political agenda, well, the big item on the political agenda this week was meant to be the Labour Party conference. Also, I mean, yeah, as it happened, of course, that agenda, that conference was completely overshadowed by the Supreme Court, although I doubt anyone in the Labour Party 
will be particularly upset that their conference was overshadowed by the government being repudiated by our highest court. I think even before you get to uh, the fact that the conference... Well, I think we probably both had quite a weird conference experience in that I was mostly reviewing David Cameron's book for the first two days because it's quite long and I had a fairly tight deadline. So I kept bumping into MPs who'd be like, how's it going? I'd be like, so I've got a lot of opinions about Cameron's (laughs) prose style and you uh, seem to end up chairing almost every... Yeah, I was chairing a lot of New Statesman panels about very specific policy areas which shouldn't be jarring at party conference but somehow is because everyone who asks you how the atmosphere is including the MPs who sit on those very panels wants to know what you think about the latest Brexit row or about you know what's going on in Jeremy Corbyn's office rather than you know do you think that it's there's a lot of merits to extending universal infant free school meals to primary school students for example Um, so I guess it was jarring for both of us. Yeah. So I also had the slightly weird thing that basically the point that I came out of my Cameron's book cocoon mm. was exactly the point that the mood turned because yeah. of the Supreme Court thing. Would be, yeah, oh, there were cheers in the room that yeah, I was I, in when it well, happened. Well, so uh, I think is I literally filed uh, the, uh, <laughs> as so I was you know watching the thing on the screen to get a vague sense of what was going on, but I filed. At exactly the point that Becky Long Bailey got her round of applause, Corbyn came on and went, I just got a point of order about the theme lobby. Mm. And they all sort of. And so, although I could tell, okay, yeah, you, you visibly are getting happier than you were when I you know, bumped into people on the way to the bar or whatever, but it was slightly weird because it meant that I kind of only had the. The only thing I kept, the only um, sort of key sign that it had been a conference of two distinct phases were the number of people who said to me it's been a conference of like two really different moods Mm. in the sort of upbeat bit yeah no I think obviously when it opened the big stories were the sort of abortive um, attempt to get rid of Tom Watson from the deputy leader position and then Andrew Fisher the key advisor a very loyal Corbynite the the author of the manifesto announcing that he'd be leaving leaving his post so those two were really bad stories for Labour and they were on the front pages you know it was all like Labour infighting and then there was a sort of Brexit stitch-up story where it was the leadership office would have to stop um, the mainly remain-minded members from from passing a motion that would tie the the leadership to campaigning for Remain um, in the event of an of the sort of probably imminent general election. So those were the big bad infighting stories and they were sort of the story of the first day, but they did disappear, I think, before the um, Supreme Court ruling came to pass because while they were going on at conference, the big story that most people were seeing was um, the one of Thomas Cook collapsing. And that's like, that's a big story. And it's also a very big British media story. You get so much footage from it. It's great for TV journalists so many Vox Pops. It's a really big deal. It's the world's oldest travel company. You know, the rest of the world is interested too. And, you know, I had an MP say who was not happy with the private schools motion, which was the motion that passed to abolish private schools that would obviously be tricky for the shadow treasury team because they want to tax the private schools. That when that passed, someone who was quite uncertain about that was saying, thank goodness, you know, it's not on any of the, well, it's on one front page, but it's hardly in the news because of what's happening at Thomas Cook before anything to do with the Supreme Court came out. Yeah. No, it's interesting because I hadn't thought about the Thomas Cook element at all because, uh, yeah, in, you my, were reading... in, in my Cameron cocoon. Yeah, I, th- I was very struck. Yeah, then that was the thing. Then, then yeah, when I was listening to music radio in the morning, of course, yeah. that completely blew it out of the the water. Yeah, um, I think yeah, the thing the thing with the Tom Watson thing because obviously I was hadn't quite started. Well, when it happened, it happened so late at night, and I was not still reading the Cameron book at, that late on a Friday. Is then it felt to me then it 
you know the people were essentially agreed that it was a bad idea or they were sharply divided on why because some people were like well look it's got to be done at some point yeah um and once you've started doing it you might as well you, follow yeah through. you've you've yeah you've set the mind in the mind of the broadcasters and most of the press that the story of this conference is division so essentially what they did was they paid the price but they didn't get the prize mm. and other people were just like well, you do this and you the only point that Tom Watson becomes relevant again is if the leadership becomes vacant. Yeah. And the second you move against him, when you know, he's on a... Uh, yeah, essentially, right, he's part of a what I, I think is at least a semi-permanent NEC minority. He's part of a minority on the conference floor, a minority in the activist base. The only reason to move against him is if you fear defeat or Corbyn wants to stand down. Mm. Now, to be honest then this is where I think it becomes a lose-lose sort of proposition for the leadership. If you do fear he's going to lose and or, and or Corbyn does want to stand down, it's crazy not to have just pushed on with it. Yeah. If you don't think those things, then all you've done is is create the meme that that is possible, right? It is a visible lack of confidence in your guy's ability to continue to hold on to the leadership. But it, yeah, in the end, it didn't matter because the... Yeah, the 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 political stories didn't cut through were, as you say, Thomas Cook and Boris Johnson lying to the Queen. Yeah, and Tom Watson didn't even make his speech in the end, which was going to be the sort of, you tried to get rid of me, but you couldn't kind of speech because of the changed timings due to the Supreme Court ruling. Yeah, yeah, the kind of, the very quick sort of crashing Corbyn in to the end of uh, Long Bailey's speech. Moving this thing where I cannot work out how it wouldn't have been a nightmare for them. If he's cheered, the cheering would have been covered, covered as... Labour Party crowd stick it to Corbyn by yeah. cheering Tom Watson. If he's booed, it's divided Labour, Labour Party mob boo. goes on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like there is there is no positive angle. And I think it does sort of underline. Although I think if you had more democracy in the Labour Party, actually people would behave better because I think people respond to incentives. Mm. Um, it does underline that one of the reasons why the Liberal Democrats and actually this did really annoy me on people going, oh, they might have three different Brexit positions. It's just like, well, no, but the Lib Dems vote on contradictory policies all the time mm. because they're divided over something. They vote on it. They reach a consensus. They're therefore no longer divided. So having three different Brexit end states on the conference floor is not, you know, crazy or something that, you know, people should be doing their head blowing emoji, which a number of journalists, in fact, did do. But um, <laughs> yeah. it is, of course, easier to have proper conference democracy if you're the Liberal Democrats and you have to fight for coverage than it is if you're the main opposition party. Yeah. Uh, but equally, I do think that they would have a nicer time if they were more democratic. Yeah, and the interesting thing about that numerous Brexit position accusation is obviously that's not what they've got centrally, but what they actually passed does give the opportunity for activists in leave voting seats to just, you know, to, to, to give their policy as how they think that their voters would want to hear it. And actually some people from from one of those uh, constituencies who I was speaking to at the conference were telling me if, before the vote, were telling me if we pass the Remain motion and say we're going to campaign for Remain and be a party of Remain, what will we do? We'll just go around and tell people that's not our policy. <laughs> they were just going to print different leaflets and, <laughs> and just lie, basically. And obviously you're competing with the national message then, so that probably wouldn't work, but that's, that's how desperate some of these people are. Yeah, I do think that's a slightly wild thing about the <laughs> party's Brexit argument is because of the... And I say this someone obviously has been quite critical of the EEA in terms of the referendum mandate and its essential pointlessness. But from a Labour interest perspective, 
it maintains the right of free movement, which is the essential mm. political ask of the average Labour activist. And indeed, I think, to be honest, the central political ask of the average Remain voter. Mm. I just kind of think, like, what is... I just don't think Biden, the average Remain voter, it will wake up after we've left if we're still in the single market and be like, my commissioner! Yeah. My commissioner! <laughs> yeah. Whereas they will feel keenly... My nurse. Yeah, 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 their nurse, you know, their ability to, you know, because I think the thing is, even among people who, in the nicest possible way, are never going to be able to use their right to go and work in Poland or France or Spain, the idea that they can has immense emotional resonance for Mm -hmm. a lot of Remain voters. But I think, yeah, the EEA would have allowed Labour to go, look, we've done it, it's over, it's off the shelf. But it would also have given the tangible position that they... Yeah, the, the tangible kind of, look, here are the, the things that you care about, about EU membership. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but because they didn't use Corbyn's moment of maximum power immediately after 2017 to do that, I do now think they've ended up in this weird situation where, OK, but well, whatever Brexit policy Labour has will be defied by, a, a, at the absolute minimum, 50% of its MPs, right? Mm. There is no, there is now no longer a Brexit end state for Labour's policy in which the headline is not Labour divided over Brexit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And now it's time for a section we like to call... You Ask Us. And this question is from Andrew Cooper, not the Andrew Cooper who used to work for David Cameron and was one of the architects of Tory modernisation, essentially, which is, why didn't more people in the ERG and the Brexit Ultras, why didn't they buy Michael Gove's argument that voting for the deal takes you out of the project, that is a defeat that the Remainers cannot undo, and then all of the problems with it can be undone after the fact? Well, you know, this is one of the questions that some Tory MPs who have voted for that deal sort of tear their hair out trying to answer. I suppose it's because, you know, it's, it's a similar point to why why the Labour Party opposed that deal or voted down that deal because they aren't ideologically aligned to the people proposing it. You know, they don't believe in it. They don't want to look like they're they're aligning with with that faction of the party. And what matters more to them is ideological purity over sort of just getting it done and then we can talk about the, the actual specifics in the transition period. That's sort of the impression that I get. And I think people who don't understand that perhaps don't understand that politicians kind of operate differently to to normal people (laughs) they're so loyal to their factions they're so loyal to their backgrounds as well like the way they came up through politics that they can't imagine well some of them can but lots of them just sort of stick to their stick to their ideological zeal I think that is a big part of it I also think that the problem that Theresa May had with the withdrawal agreement is she was essentially trying to get two sets of people through three doors as it were there was door one which is my deal is great you need to vote for it and if you don't vote for my brilliant deal, you, a Labour MP in a leave seat, will you know, mm. feel the hand of death you know, on your shoulder being like, you are this year's Scottish Labour. <laughs> um, which involved talking about how the deal was brilliant and honoured Brexit and was you know, just fine and wonderful. And that was also actually an argument to Conservative MPs who themselves do not have religion on the issue but mm. are in very leavey seats. Yeah, There was door three, which was... I don't know why I went from three to two, because I actually do have three doors. There was door two, which was, if you don't vote for this deal, you might get no Brexit, because Parliament's against me, yada, yada, yada. 
one that irritated the Labour MP she was trying to get through to door one, who were in any case looking for any excuse not to go through door one. Yeah. Two, it meant that the people in the next door, which was, if you don't vote for this, we might end up with a no deal, is just like, well, which is it? Yeah. And I think, so although this MP's preferred leadership candidate has slightly disappointed them, I do think, essentially, the argument that, that one Conservative MP made when I kind of first went, well, look, what's the point of getting rid of Theresa May? You've still got her parliament. Hmm. Went, well, the difference is, is that Boris Johnson will be able to say come on, guys, we don't have a majority, we just need to get it done. Now, of course, I think this was based on a misread of what Boris Johnson was going to do. Mm. But I do think the central reason why the argument advanced by Gove and by Geoffrey Cox could not land was that it's very hard to do the, look, she's crashed the car, <laughs> we just need to walk home. The, you know, the walking's unpleasant, but once we're home, we're home, and we can fix, you know, you can... You can dry yourself off. You can fix all of the problems with the journey yeah, the second yeah. you've got there. But it's impossible to make that argument, as well as the three doors problem, if you have the person, if the person who crashed the car is going, by the way, I'm going to choose the walk, the, the direction we walk home. Mm, yeah, no, you're right. It was um, just sort of promising all things to all people, which just didn't make it sound very authentic to anyone. And if Boris had had any sense, he would have given that more pragmatic message and didn't. Um, and then you hear from some of the MPs who, you know, who don't like the direction that this particular Boris Johnson-led government is going in, trying to explain to themselves why, they, why they're voting loyally with Boris as well. And so, like, one of the ar arguments that I heard from one MP who's sort of no fan of Boris Johnson but had been voting for the deal consistently and loyally the whole time was, well, you know, if you rebel now or if you leave the party or if you're suspended from the party like 21 MPs were, then you're sort of letting letting them off the hook, you know, let's vote with Boris Johnson in order to put him in that difficult position where he has to try and deliver the deal that he's promised the people who are loyally voting with him, rather than just being like, oh, well, we're wreckers, you know, you can, you can dismiss what we say or you can kick us out. So it's sort of like putting him in the hot seat. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast presented by me, Stephen Bush, and my colleague Anusha Kellyan. It's recorded by Emily Bootle and produced by Nick Hilton. If you've been enjoying the New Statesman podcast, please do leave a review on your preferred podcast provider. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Yeah. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.